ask Pastor Floyd to come and share again this this week as we're going into the the third part of the series that he that he uh, that he started a few weeks ago and and uh, I was very very excited to have him share this morning. So let's welcome Pastor Floyd. That's a creepy one, huh? Yes, please. That's good. Thank you. That's that's not the stand. It's this. Well, are there any questions? Uh, okay, that's a good question, and it's probably the same place yours is. <laughs> All right. I'm fine. Welcome, church. Uh, I just want to tell you, I'm so glad that you came to God's house. Did you know that uh, God has been in the kitchen cooking up all kinds of delicious things? He's been working at it for 6,000 years. He has put together dishes, all of which are nourishing, none of which are fattening, all of which are wonderful to the taste buds. and it's my job to be your waiter. Uh, you're just going to have to be patient. I'm not real good at this. And if I spill a little water or something, uh, just kind of brush it off and dive into that food and enjoy it. Uh, I feel probably as much nervousness as I've ever felt, and I cannot explain it. Like somebody said, I feel as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. (laughs) But I I have a lot of things that God's put on my heart, and I frankly have agonized over them to know where to start and where to end. And, uh, uh, I, I just need you to lean forward and lean in and let's God, let God deliver something that is good and nourishing into your soul. One of the great concerns of my heart is that uh, we have a real problem in Western Christianity. Uh, most of you feel the, the drift of a culture that is moving from a respect for righteousness to a disregard at the best and a mocking at the worst of all that that represents righteousness. And the scary thing is that the church is diminishing in numbers. But that's not the biggest problem. The church is diminishing in its ability to bring answers that can deal with the with the spirit of the age and the and the questions that are being asked without even knowing that they're questions. 
And uh, I'm going to just start right here. Can you think of a time when there will be justice and equity for everyone? Can you think of a time when there will be safety because everyone will be selfless, serving the corporate common good? Think about a time when education will have informed all people so that they will be instinctive, they will instinctively make the right choices. Evil will be swallowed up in infinitely perfected the character of humankind. Think about a time when the problems of disease and sickness and aging and death have all been conquered by the wonders of science. Think about a time when nations will not rise up against nation and wars will cease. You know, one of the amazing things is that, uh, well, first of all, let me establish some things. First of all, God has created humans very differently from the rest of creation. He has created man in his own image. And in that image is enormous creativity, is enormous power and potential. Uh, and also, we have to understand that all of humanity lives under a curse. And there is something dysfunctional about our spirit man. And unfortunately, this isn't exclusive of, of professing Christians. There is something dysfunctional that causes us to spoil everything we put our hand to. Division and war and hatred and strife and uh, it's epidemic. And uh, in the midst of all of this, think, the image of God in us manifests itself in its ability to imagine a utopia when all of these things would be true. Uh, as a matter of fact, this, this quality of the image of God in man doesn't even require that you're a Christian. Did you know that President Obama has a utopian dream? See, he's living true He's, he's living and acting according to the dream that he holds. And uh, sometimes we uh, shake our heads and wonder why. Until we understand how he thinks. Understand the foundation of his thought processes. Now, I'm picking him out. And uh, it's been interesting. There is this hope for a utopia that is, that is native to the human mind. Even the unregenerate mind can imagine perfection. Now, that's not possible apart from the image of God in man. Matter of fact, there are some songs that have been written to this end. I'm going to just read a little some of the lyrics. First one's called Somewhere, and it was uh, written by Leonard Bernstein, the lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and here it is. Somewhere, there's a place for us. Peace and quiet and open air wait for us somewhere. There's a time for us, some time a day, some day a time for us. Time together, time to spare, time to look, time to care, 
someday, somewhere. I'd sing it for you, but that would spoil it. (laughs) We'll find a new way of living. We'll find there's a way of forgiving somewhere. There's a place for us, a time and place for us. Hold my hand, and we're halfway there. Hold my hand, and I'll take you there. Somewhere, somehow, someday. Uh, There's another song that you probably heard. It's old. Uh, It was written by Jamie Cullum, and it's sung by Tony Bennett. And here it is. If I ruled the world, every day would be the first day of spring. Every heart would have a new song to sing. And we'd sing of the joy every morning would bring. If I ruled the world, every man would be as free as a bird. Every voice would be a voice to be heard. Take my hand. We would treasure each day that occurred. My world would be a beautiful place where we would weave such wonderful dreams. My world would wear a smile on its face like the man in the moon has when the moon beams. If I ruled the world, every man would see the world as his friend. Yeah, there'd be happiness that no man could end. No, my friend, not if I ruled the world. Every hand would be held up high. Every star would shine in everyone's sky if I ruled the world. Couldn't that just get you right here? Maybe a little lower? Uh, Here's a song by John Lennon that has been lauded and applauded uh, as a great piece of music. Here's the words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there are no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And not religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. It's an interesting thing, to me at least, that uh, we have this within us to imagine perfection, or as we perceive perfection. And yet it, it, it it is built on a foundation of lies. It has a wrong mindset. It has a wrong worldview. It doesn't account for the things and the facts as they really are. There is this universal thing in humans to be able to think of utopian perfection. Dr. David Nobel in the the World Times gives this following definition of a worldview. He says, and I quote, a worldview is an interpretive framework, much like a pair of glasses through which one views everything. It refers to any set of ideas, beliefs, or values that provide framework or map to help you understand God, the world, and your relationship to God. Specifically, a world contains a particular perspective regarding each of the following ten disciplines. Theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, 
politics, economics, and history. So when you sit in a conversation with someone that incorporates any of these things, they will be expressing a worldview in how they see that, how they interpret history. We're told that by the age of five, a child has acquired a basic framework framework for their worldview. How they relate, how I should say they should, how they relate to television, probably the biggest one. How they relate to other children, how they relate to the school and their parents and their brothers and sisters. And they get a sense that the world is a safe place, a warm place, a nurturing place. A few actually get that. Others have this worldview that it's, it's dangerous, it's cold, it's malicious. You've got to look out for yourself. And they grow up uh, scarred by a faulty uh, worldview. We're in the middle of a presidential election. Uh, And we're being asked to make a choice. We're being asked to make a choice between two parties. Now, you may have a, a, a third, fourth party, but don't bother. There's only three of you. <laughs> uh, we have, for the first time in the history of the United States, a party that has adopted Roman one. Romans 1 as their platform. You, got, you want to guess? Read Romans 1 and you've got the democratic platform. It's, it is absolutely profoundly shocking that we, our country has come to this place where probably half, maybe a little more than half, embrace that as reasonable. Homosexual marriage, uh, abortion, and absolute removal of all boundaries to life and behavior and thought. And anyone who would impose or suggest that there is a restriction uh, in any of these areas is to be crushed and removed. Now, I've been around long enough to see some amazing changes. Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm 75. And uh, I graduated from high school in 1956. How many of you remember 1956? Are we living in a different world? Well, what I want to say to you is that uh, there, there is no answer. There is no recovery of this slide apart from an awakening and revival in the church. Now, Jesus Christ and Christianity, the ethos of the Judeo-Christian ethic, were foundational with the founding fathers. These things were given as assumptions, as no-brainers. And piece by piece by piece by piece, they have been sacrificed burned up, turned to ashes. And now we wonder why we have uh, half our population uh, who salutes the idea of abortion 
uh, salutes the idea of homosexual marriage. They salute the idea of unbridled human freedom and expression. Now, I, I would really encourage you to go to the polls and vote. Maybe you filled out your, your deal already. But I have bad news for you. It's not going to change until the human heart is redeemed. There is no hope for this country apart from a spiritual awakening. Out of the fountain of the life of Jesus Christ within us comes the kind of thoughts and attitudes and behaviors and responses that bring healing and wholeness and will raise a generation of people that are grounded in true truth. So I, I have voted already. Darlene has voted. We put our absentee ballot in, and uh, we're, we were glad to do that. But as I, as I look at the whole picture, uh, I see disaster ahead, no matter who's elected, unless there is an internal transformation. And dear friends, it will begin in this room. It will begin in your living room. It will begin with us. And probably, I don't know how many people are in church this morning in Bear Valley. Let's give it a guess. 1,500? Is that a good guess? It's got to begin with 1,500. It's got to begin with one. And it comes to us as a, as a desperate need to understand our roots and our foundation. George Barna, how many of you are familiar with George Barna? Okay, he, he is one who does uh, uh, surveys and examines worldview among Christians over the, uh, the past 13 years. Uh, now I'm going to give you the world, what a worldview is by his definition. A biblical worldview was defined as believing that absolute moral truth exists. The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely a symbol. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or doing, do, uh, doing good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the, the universe today. In the research, anyone who held all these beliefs were said to have a biblical worldview. How many biblical worldviews here this morning? Maybe, you know, we go by them too fast to really identify them. But here's what he said. Uh, overall, the current research revealed that only 9% of all American adults, adults have a biblical worldview. That sounds like 93% that do not have a biblical worldview, they're working from a different foundation that may have some religion in it. Okay, the person who was labeled born again, uh, the study discovered that they were twice as likely as the average adult to possess a biblical worldview. However, that meant that even among born again Christians, Less than one out of five, 19%, had such an outlook on life. 
These are people who self-identified themselves as being born again. One-third of all adults, 34%, believe that moral truth is absolute and unaffected by the circumstances. Slightly less than half of the born-again adults, that's 46%, believe in absolute moral, moral truth. That sounds like 54% feel it's all relative, that there's, there is nothing uh, secure and fastened down, if you please. Half of all adults firmly believe that the Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. 80% of born-again adults would concur. Uh, born-again adults, there's people like me. There's people like you. Sitting in church this morning. Somewhere. Doing something. One quarter of adults... 27% are convinced Satan is a real force. Even a minority of born-again adults, 40% 40, 40 adopt that perspective. Similarly, one quarter of the adults, 28%, believe that it is impossible for someone to earn their way to heaven through good behavior. Not quite all, half of all born-again Christians, 47%, reject that notion. A minority of Christian adults, 40%, are persuaded that Jesus lived a sinless life while he was on earth. Slightly less than two-thirds of the born-again segment, that is 62%. I guess I stopped. That's depressing enough, isn't it? I, I, I go through this, not because it brings me any joy. I go through this so that it will be imprinted upon our mind and our spirits that there is a spiritual desert in Western culture. And unfortunately, it has been like the frog in the tea kettle or in the pan. Put in there when it's cool, turn the heat up, and because the heat gradually increases, the frog... Just, just happy to stay there until it's accommodated and it becomes frog legs for supper. This is, this is the kind of thing that is happening about born-again believers. We are more informed by our television, by the internet, by the club we go to, by the place where we work. We're more informed by those people, their attitudes and values, than we're informed by the Word of God. You know, we spend a hundred times more time in those arenas than we spend in the Word of God. We don't take it serious. And if we do, it's once over lightly. We don't have a framework, really, for interpreting uh, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's full of all kinds of things that trouble uh, the pundits that speak on television. You know, what kind of God? would wipe out a whole nation? What kind of God would do this or that other thing that seems contradictory to love? I'll give you a little clue here. And uh, you could take it or leave it, but you will hear it. (laughs) 
We are conditioned by a culture that has been pulled down, undermined, virtually destroyed. And we find ourselves adapting and responding to that as wholesome and right and necessary. Uh, that's the first half. Okay. Let me ask you a question. What is it that makes Christianity superior to all other religions? Okay. Jesus? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Who gets to decide? Okay. Where is he? Okay. Thank you. All these answers are right, and they're good. Uh, but I want to. I, I want to just see if I can nail this down. Uh, just a little bit better. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I preached a message here. And I remember it. Does anybody else remember it? <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> well, the question was, uh, what was it that changed the Apostle Paul? And in what way was he changed? Now, we're going to take a look at uh, Paul's life just briefly to go back to this because we need desperately to understand the third element of our four cornerstones. What was the first one? A spiritualistic worldview. There is an invisible realm, and the power resides in that realm. Thank you, Rob. The second one, what was it? The kingdom of God is here now, but not yet. Does that make sense? When Jesus entered the scene, he brought with him the kingdom, which is the rule of God over earth. Did all of the earth come under Jesus' rule at that time? No. His life was implanted in his disciples, who in turn did the works that Jesus did and shared the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? Is it good news? As I go through my checklist, you know, each of us have one. Oh, I'm doing pretty good here, pretty good here. Ah, I need some improvement there. I'll go to church and go to the altar. Uh, I'll check this one. I'm doing pretty good there. That's not good news. And Paul learned that in a most profound way. Now, here was a man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was radical for Judaism. He worked hard at keeping the law. And he was irate at anything else that came up that would contradict that frame of reference. And the frame of reference was, we find our relationship with God by keeping the rules. 
It's called self-righteousness. It started in the garden. When Eve was confronted by Satan, Satan's temptation was, has God said that the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die? Come on, he's holding out on you. He knows that you can be your own God. You will not need anyone to tell you what's good or bad. Eat the fruit. It'll make you wise. What was that? That was the root of sin. That is the sin out of which all other sins emerge. Whether it's anger or hatred or jealousy or bitterness or strife or whatever it is, mark it down. It all emerges out of the original sin of a spirit of independence from God. And that's where the battle is being fought for us as Christians. Paul was, was confronted. Uh, let me read his confrontation. Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Ron Floyd is 2 Corinthians. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, Paul is talking about his confrontation. Now, you all remember the event that's recorded in Acts 9, where Paul, Paul is going with official documents to persecute the church in Antioch. And on the way, Jesus knocks him off his high horse, confronts him. He's blind, and uh, he finds himself being instructed to go and, and see a certain person who would then uh, tell him what had happened and bring healing to his eyes so he would see again. So what happened after that? Here it is. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Here it is. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I, have you been there? I don't, I, I'm not sure what that is. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things. Things that a man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. Anyway, I'm going to stop uh, there right now. But this is the experience that Paul had out in the Arabian desert. Not only did he get confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he had three years of seminary in the Arabian desert where God showed him mysteries, things that, well, let's turn over to Galatians. Next book over, chapter 1. Verse 11 and following. This is in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So whatever Paul was taught out there, he had an experience face-to-face with Jesus Christ. What is the commonly held uh, qualification to be an apostle? Someone that walked with Jesus. Someone that saw him face-to-face. Someone who heard his teachings. And Paul, this heavily committed Jewish leader, is confronted by Jesus with things that he says were inexpressible. To the Jew, it was an unthinkable thing that came to him. And the issue now, what about Judaism? I asked the question earlier about what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And you gave, you gave good answers. And I just underline that by saying what sets Christianity apart from all other religions is grace versus law. Religion has a good motive but it is poorly informed because it assumes that I can be improved and educated and changed until I'm acceptable to God. This is the issue with Islam. They don't tell you that Muhammad comes to live in you and give and empower your life. Muhammad gave the rules and you better keep them. I see, I don't see any burkas here this morning. So there's the issue of law versus grace. I want to tell you something that I think, more than any other single thing, has cut the heart out of Western Christianity. We have become Judaism light. We have become people who are filled with guilt and and anxiety about our behaviors. Perhaps, well, we should, because that certainly isn't coming from Christ. What do we get for counsel? Let's pray about it. And here's six steps to this, or seven steps to this. And we're encouraged from top to bottom to approach our relationship with God as though it were an issue of our perfected performance which means we always lose. Just like Judaism loses. They could not accept Paul's message. It was too radical. And the Jews, as a people, God's chosen people, favored by God in so many ways, yet to have their eyes open, there will be an ingathering. But up to Paul's time, and really to this day, Judaism still operates on the basis of personal performance and personal righteousness. It's a tragedy. They were the ones that were were told by the prophet Jeremiah that there's coming a day when I'm going to take away your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and it will be a a heart that, that is inclined towards me, inclined towards righteousness. We Christians must get the foundation right. It is by grace that we are saved. 
And that not of itself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now here's the miracle, and I'm going to have to shortcut this unless we have food coming in. Uh, here's the miracle. Uh, Jesus, eternally God, the creator, took on human form and in as a man, never sinned. This perfect son of God went to the cross, was crucified, died, was buried, and rose again. Now here's what Paul says in Romans 8, if you want to take a quick look at it. That's where I'd like you to go with me for a moment. Uh, let's start with Romans 5. We've got time for three chapters. Uh, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's, that's a big statement. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. Uh, let's go down. I'm going to have to move along here. Verse 17, For if the trespass of the one man re reigned or ruled, Through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in this life? See, God designed us to be winners. But something has to happen before that can happen. Look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 6. For we know are you listening? We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not offer up the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, wickedness but offer, excuse me, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. I want to propose something for you. When Jesus, representative man, representative of all mankind, that will ever live, went to the cross, all 
10 billion of those people went to the cross. All of them were put to death in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that we were included. And the issue of being born again or baptized, the issue is one that we come to agreement with God that my old Adam nature that infects all of humanity, we're born with it. And as hard as we try to be righteous and try to be bent toward God, we find ourselves bent toward unrighteousness. Now, some of us in church have learned to manage the outward manifestation. But we know it's still working up here. I still judge. I still resent. I still hold grudges, but nobody can see it because I'm smiling. I want you to know that that old Adam nature that you were born with, along with all of humanity, is incorrigible. There is no course to be studied. There is no degree to be acquired that's going to change that old Adam nature. We can cover it up. We can make him look better. We can do it in private. But the fact of the matter between us and God, we know that there's something wrong. I'm telling you God's solution for my old nature. Uh, do you know what the, uh, the word, where the word wicker, you know what wicker furniture is? You know what it means? It's bent wood. Wicked has the same root. There is a bent toward one thing or another. And the old Adam is always bent toward independence. Now, we want God to come alongside and help us. And we believe that Jesus will help us do better. But the fact of the matter, God is not committed to helping your Adam, your Adam nature become righteous. The remedy for Adam was the cross. And in him, all die. Now, this is part of the reason why many people who make a profession of faith have no staying power. Because they're led to believe that receiving Jesus is receiving my big helper. Now, that should be remedied at their baptism. Because baptism is a figure that clearly demonstrates that I'm agreeing with God that the remedy for my Adam nature is nothing but death. And I'm too big a coward to do it for myself. And I believe that God included me in Jesus when he went to the cross. Now, you and I know that the cross wasn't the end of the matter. There was a resurrection. There was an ascension. And we are still in him, seated in the heavenlies, according to the book of Ephesians. We are still in him, and we sit together with him in heavenly places, looking down on the mess and giving the amen to his redemptive purposes. Hello? I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is profoundly liberating. And yet, if there are 1,500 people in church this morning, I'll bet you there aren't 150 that know this. And they're still doing Judaism light. Great sermons, good ethics, 
good morals appealing to a dead man. Second Corinthians 5.17, you know it well probably. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone and everything has become new. Now we Christians have developed a habit of kind of spiritualizing things, putting it up here in the nether region where it has no form or substance. To be in Christ, that's not just a nice picture to hold in your mind. It's true. And this is what made you to be a true Christian, a born-again Christian. The old man dead, a new life was birthed, and you became born of the Spirit. Galatians 2.20 and 21 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. I mean, that, he says it really plain. He doesn't say, for me to live is to have Jesus by the Holy Spirit propping up my Adam nature. For me to live is literally Christ alive in me. Now, we've got a, a lot to deal with if we make this, this change in our thinking. Because then we've got to explain, since I, I am in Christ and I was buried, I was, died with him and I was buried with him, I resurrected with him, why do I still have impulses to sin? Why does that old thing tend to come back? And the reason is very simple. Our condition after the new birth is parallel to Adam's condition before the fall. There is still a devil. There are still demons. There is still pressure from their kingdom to drag us back to the, to the, the life of independence from God. I mean, we could close, cover it up, make it quite religious, get a, become a member of a church or whatever else it takes. But uh, the reality is that the enemy doesn't have a large arsenal of temptations. Did you know that? He does one thing, and he does it real well. Now, he's not the one that would make me experience lust or would cause me to fudge a bit on my income taxes or some other way. That's not his deal. His deal is to get me independent of the Father, and the rest of it will follow. So if I'm feeling guilty that I was unkind, in my speech to my wife. Uh, I need to know that the issue was not the words that I spoke, but where I had gone in my spirit. I unplugged, as it were, from Christ and plugged back into the old nature. Now, that old nature is still dead, even though it's acting alive. But I need to stand, stand on this and make it my truth. So, when I'm unkind, say something that's not appropriate, it has happened a few times. I need to call it what, it what it is. So when I pray, God, I'm not asking you to forgive me for my words and my attitude. I'm asking me to forgive you. Forgive me 
for abandoning you and believing the lie. I want you to know that every time you live from the wrong source, you're going to mess up. And you can hide it. Uh, you can put it in your guilt list, whatever you want to do. But whenever you, you sin in any way, it's because at that moment you believe the lie that you could live independent from God and you plugged back in to that lie and vented yourself on that un unsuspecting person. I'm just giving that as an illustration of sin. And we have to deal with these things because people are confused. And they find themselves living with guilt and hopelessness, even though they may have been Christians for 50 years. They still haven't been told the truth and how to get rid of that shame, how to get back and plugged into the Holy One. You know, of all the things we can do to get better, I wanted to reduce it to a list of one. Abide in him and let his word abide in you. Some of, some of us may have problems uh, with a personal quiet time, the reading of scripture and meditation and so on. But when we see this, if we see this dynamic, I want you to know it changes uh, your level of motivation to stay connected. And this, this is between every one of us and God. And the fruit of it is stuff that we see on the outside. Now, I could harangue you about the literature you're reading, or I could harangue you about a lot of things that are destructive to your soul. But the reality is the sin was disconnect from God, connect to the lie that I can live. I can handle this. God does all these things, but I can deal with this. This is my business. I have a right to be angry. I've been cheated. I've been terribly wrong. And I have a right to hold this, and I don't have to forgive. Now, 99% of the people would agree with you, but not God and not the Holy Spirit. Because your right to do anything on your own is to unplug from the source of life and figuratively plug back into the lie. Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, is anyone that just has a, a, a burning question that uh, maybe would would help all of us? And I'll I'll attempt to answer it or pray for you. Man, talk about a good sermon! Everybody's. Got it. All right. I'm humbled, friends, to be in front of you this morning. Uh, my journey has been the experience of everything I've said this morning. Some of it's not very nice. You know, it's possible to be a pastor, give sermons, and to be admired and, and patted on the back for, for whatever and be living and functioning from the flesh. We can put the clothes on and look religious. We can put the 
certificates of our PhD or our ordination on the wall. And uh, that, that could kind of bolster us up a little bit. I am somebody. But I want to tell you, what I've told you this morning is the key to true humility. You see what I'm saying? If I can take no credit for any good thing that I do, that's humility. Because it isn't I that do it, but it is Christ who lives in me. We can get rid of our peacock feathers and stop strutting and, and just be people that are filled with Christ and not the need for ego gratification. Let's stand together, can we? <clears throat> Father God, we come into your presence and I just have to say on the surface of it, that seems really inappropriate. Knowing who we are. Knowing the load of Adam that has scarred and marred. And yet, God, we come into your presence because of the blood of Jesus that has expunged the record. And we come into your presence, Father, acknowledging that you have put the life of Christ in us by the Spirit to respond and think and emote his life. And Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you would, you would grace us with understanding and you would grace us, Father, with that uh, awareness of the total provision to deal with our bentness. And now by your Spirit, God, we are bent toward righteousness and it is you, it is not us. God, I pray for the empowering presence of your Holy Spirit to rest upon every person in this room. I pray, Father, as we go forward, uh, the Holy Spirit will find willing clay to mold and to shape in ways that will honor and glorify God and in reality will fulfill us. So God, come in power. Take the word and wash us with it and establish, God, the manifestation of your presence through your body, through your kingdom, until Jesus returns and we are fully redeemed and in his presence and in the presence of no evil. We look forward, God, to your completion of what you have done so well. And we receive it with gratitude in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.